This is Kim Richmond, president of ASMAC, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations, recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives in music. Thank you guys so much for uh, inviting us here. Uh, let me just bring up everybody here. Don Randy, come on up. Life was changed forever. 
I'm sitting there 40 years old, and I just I never heard anything like this in my life. And that is, I, I wanted to be in that band. And uh, that was it. Time rolled on, and I took up trombone, and I redefined the word mediocre. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so I, I, I had no choice. I had to leave the band. You know, so I ended up uh, getting developing some arranging chops and whatever, and I went uh, into the business. And, and I started out, fortunately, uh, uh, when I got out of the army, uh, there was this thing that started called rock and roll, and uh, and I realized it was a three-chord business, and I knew four. <laughs> And I looked up strings. And 
by Irish string quartet, and it was Sid Sharp and Gary Nuttycombe, Jesse Ehrlich on cello, I don't remember the second violin, Hal Blaine on drums, David Coleman played 12 string, Bob West on bass, and we went to Gold Star, and I was scared to death. I was petrified that what the hell was this going to sound like? And everybody was in the room, and I started backing out the door. <laughs> As I was backing out, I was going, two, three, four. And I went into the booth, and I went, hey, sounds all right. So I came back in the studio. So that's how it became an arrangement. Yeah, it's interesting, because one of the last interviews I did just before we did uh, the DVD was with Mike Nesmith, who turned the town forever. I mean, he turned that every year in town. And I needed a sign-off on a song, so he said, and I asked him, so would you, he said, yeah, I'll So I flew up north, and he was very honest. It was interesting doing this film, because the honesty is really amazing at this point in everybody's life. And he was talking about being, you know, he said, I should have been fired the first day. <laughs> you know, because he said, you know, I didn't realize, you know, uh, I'm a, he says, I was, I thought I was a musician. I'm not a musician. He says, I was an act, you know, the acting thing and all that. He says, when I said, when they told me what I was going to have to do, he said, no, that's not what I want to do. I want to do my own music and this and that. And he realized he didn't know how to, and they said, that's fine, we'll, we'll set you up. But he said, they, I didn't know how to write a pop song. So they said, we'll give you to Don P. And he said, to, and Mike, to you. Is that how it went down? And then you guys started working with Nesbitt uh, on that stuff. Yeah, yeah, we did Mary Mary and did a Bind Your Dog and Sweet Young Thing and all those recordings. Glenn Campbell and, and uh, James Burton, right. Mike Dacey, right. and they played. And one day, however, they invited us to play for the Monkees. And we went to a, some kind of theater with jam with screaming teenagers. And they put a curtain down between us and the monkeys. Oh, nice. And I didn't like this at all. And I told them that's the last time I'll let you down. But they, you know, we were back, you know, behind a scrim, they call it a scrim. It was right. very thin, and the monkeys were up there. Wow. That was not, but Mike Nesmith was terrific. Yeah, and he actually yeah. was a good songwriter. Yeah. Fine. How did you get it? He grew up in the video. Well, indirectly, yeah. My 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 uh, my father was actually in the movie business at the time. He started out as an agent, and then became an executive at Universal. But actually, the things that happened that got me in the business were sort of independent from the fact that I just sort of had a sense of it from growing up. And there's so many things I could talk about because there's a lot of things that happened to me that were really important musically that that happened before any professional thing happened, but, you know, I'll, I'll just tell you a couple things that happened that were interesting to me. After I got out of college, after I got out of the Army Reserve, six-month thing, and I came back to L.A., and um, the things that I had on my mind were, I had a very deep attraction and involvement with jazz. I was trained classically. I'd been uh, exposed to a lot of r and music in my childhood because of people who were in my life, which is an ironic thing, but I love that music. And uh, it proved to be really valuable to me later. Um, but my main thing was jazz, and I was thinking, do I really want that life? And I, and I immediately decided that unless I could go to New York and get hired by Miles Davis and launch a career on that level, 
I wouldn't have a lifestyle that would appeal to me, and I didn't want to, you know, go home to uh, motels, travel all over the place for limited audiences. And I, I wanted to live a traditional life. I wanted to have a family life. And so I thought, what are the opportunities to make music in Los Angeles? And I started hearing about the recording world of LA. And um, somehow I was able to meet Pearl Kaufman, who was a premier pianist in Los Angeles. She not only was Stravinsky's West Coast recording pianist when, when Stravinsky did all the recordings for Columbia with Robert Kraft here, but she also was a premier orchestral pianist for people like Bernard Terman and Alfred Newman and Leonard Rosenman and Elmer Bernstein and on and on. She was one of the top pianists. So there was a very funny conversation that happened that has to do with my uh, distasteful sense of humor, I guess you can call it. So I called her up and I said, um, my name is Mike Lang, you don't know me, I'm a pianist, and I just graduated from the University of Michigan, and, um, and I'm assuming you don't teach because you're really busy in your life. And she, with a little bit of attitude, said, yeah, I don't teach. I said, great, because I want to study with you. And so there was a moment. And I, and I said, look, I'm not trying to be like an idiot, but I said, here's what I want to do. I don't want to study the piano or study classical music. I've done that. I said, what I want to do is, I have no idea what it's like to play in an orchestra. I have no idea what it's like to record for a film or a television show. I would just like to have you be a consultant. And I'd like to go, you know, and watch what you do and see how you solve problems and ask questions and stuff like that. And I said, would that be OK? She loved the idea. So we got together and I played for her. We did all that kind of stuff. And then she took me to the first session I've ever been at, which was a two hour movie that Lalo Schiffman was scoring. And Pearl had a prodigious technique and a prodigious ability to sight. So composers were always trying to, like, um, bust her, you know, like, something she couldn't play. And there was a chase scene that was like five minutes long, and there was like a two and a half minute piano solo that was like Bartok solo piano music, if you know the Allegro Barbaro, which is really difficult, it's really distant, it's really active, it was really exposed, and she just you know, did it perfectly. I'm watching. I'm also watching how she functioned in an orchestral situation, what the vibe was like, what the conversations were like, you know, what the problem solving issues were like, and all that. But, more magically, I was introduced to Lalo, and he um, took an interest in me. He said, he said, what do you want to do in blah, blah, blah? And I said, I'm not sure. I think I want to do this kind of work, and I'm playing jazz, and you know, da 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 He said, great. Next thing I know, he had been working, or had a relationship with Paul Horn, who was looking for a new piano player. So he recommended me. Paul Horn calls me up and says, I'm, I'm looking for a new piano player. And I said, he said, would you be interested? And I said, yeah, great, you know. I said, well, what do I need to do? And he said, well, you know the Miles Davis recording kind of blue? And I said, yeah, I love that record. He says, you know the tune's so well? And I said, do, 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 do. He says, you know what that voice he is? I said, yeah, I, I know that. It's mobile. And it's, uh, he says, that's all you need to know to play in my band. <laughs> so, so that's sounding promising. So, so he had me come to the house and we played it. And the very first thing that happened was he had signed a deal with RCA recording contract, and he had commissioned Lalo Schifrin to write a religious jazz piece called Jazz on the Mass Text. Jazz Suite on the Mass Text. So it was a Paul Horn quintet, it was a mixed ensemble of brass and woodlands and harp and percussion, 
four vocal solos and a vocal choir. And it's my first recording session. And Bobby Helper, who is one of the most important contractors in Hollywood, uh, contracted and all the guys at Paul's horn and some permanent quartet except the Larry Bunker played drums because he didn't have a regular drum. And it was just like walking into the studios at the highest possible level. And so there's that. And then I don't want to go out forever and ever, but that's like stage left. Stage right was I was working at a restaurant uh, on La Cienega called Slate Brothers with Nino Temple and Abel Stevens. Nino and April. Nino was a great tenor player, it sounded like Stan Gatz. Nino and April sang the West and recorded for Omnery and Atlantic Records and had huge hits. A kind of what used to be called, what became Blue Eyed Soul. They were like white performers who did like shuffle things and dance oriented things that had a groove and they had a connectivity. And so, 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 so they had this thing. And Nino liked what I did, so he recommended me as well. I go into a full spectrum that you don't know anything about this kind of music at all. But there were three piano players, Don was one of them. That's how I met Don Randy, who helped me enormously in my career later on. And you were there, I'm sure. And uh, we're a gold star. And all I knew is I was I was lucky because all the piano players were playing the same thing. All I had to do was figure out what they were playing and I could slide in. And he liked me and continued. So I, I kind of, that's how I want to start. Sorry if I've been so long. Here, Don, tell us how you got kicked out of the state of New York. Sorry. <laughs> this is one of my favorite pianists. Reciprocal. For me, who is he? I got in so much trouble the last year of my high school. My music teacher was a gentleman by the name of Irving Kurtz, who had the band at the Concord Hotel in the Towns of Castle Mountains. And if one day I would be one third of the musician that this guy was, I would be very happy. He died at a very young age, of 34. I didn't know it when I left New York, but he had leukemia. And, and people that would come up from Broadway shows and stuff that would work in the Castle Mountains, would always try to get Irving to come to New York. Come on, I'll get you a show. You can do a Broadway show. And he always would refuse, and that was the reason. I was studying classical music, but he got me interested in accompanying and playing for, for uh, a lot of light, light opera people and musical comedy people that appeared in the Castle Mountains. But the first job he got me on was a sports banquet that my school was having. And the guest speaker was Rocky Marciano. But Rocky Marciano sang, and when he sang, he sounded like an Irish tenor. And I had to accompany him. That was my first actual accompanying job, was by Rocky Marciano. And it was great. It, was, it started me thinking about other kinds of music other than classical music. Although I must say, my father had a restaurant in the Catskills. And he had one of the first speakers outside the restaurant so that you could hear the music. And his favorite artist was a pianist by the name of Nat King Cole. And that was my first introduction to jazz, so to speak. And I would listen to him sing and play. And his piano playing was absolutely incredible. And later on, when I got to meet Oscar Peterson, you could hear a lot of those same influences coming from either one of them. And they both when they sing up and Oscar sings, he even sounds like a man. Anyway, I came to California, 
I've had so much trouble the last year. My, I was set up to go to Juilliard and to New York University by my music teacher. But because of a bunch of hoodlums that I was raised with, the New York State asked my mother to please take him out of the state. And we had relatives in California, so I got it. And I came to school, I, had, I went to Los Angeles Conservatory of Music, who had three teachers that taught at SC, uh, UCLA, and City College. So that if you had them at LA Conservatory, they knew that you could go to another class in another school. So in essence, my first two years we spent at all four schools following my teachers around and, and acquiring credits because they would get me into those classes. And along the way, I had to support myself. I went to work for California Record Engineers, which had all the East Coast jazz records and all the West Coast jazz records. And I was a stock boy there. I would send records to all the, all the music stores when there was loads of music stores, but all the department stores like the May Company or Banks, they all had their own record departments. And I was in charge to make sure that they got their allotment of records. And I would listen to all this wonderful wonderful jazz, and I decided I would try and play it, and I went to work on a Sunday at a place called Marianne Surf Club, 6th and Manhattan Street, in Los Angeles, one block west of Western on 6th Street, and it was a great background for me to learn, because Sunday was an open jam session, and great, great jazz players would come in and play, and I could sit there in awe to hear these pianists and different bass players. The first time I met Jimmy Bond, was there, one of the greatest bass players of all time. And I, I would learn, and I would learn that she asked me to play four nights a week. And while we were playing four nights a week, a guy came down from the Sunset Strip. His name was Pat Denison. He owned a club called Sherry's. Sherry's was famous for duos. Hampton Hawes played there. Marty Page played there. Many different pianists played it. It was a great place to, to get to be seen and heard. Pete Jolly stayed there forever. He came down and said, would you like to work Sundays? I said, yes. He said, well, I'm going to be firing the band next. I said, well, you can't do that. So I went up. He wasn't firing them. They were going to do, be doing so much studio work at that point, they couldn't have the job. And the replacement that we were, we replaced a pianist and an arranger, one of my favorite of all time, by the name of Marty Page. And the bass player was Joe Mondragon. Unbelievable bass player. And that's how we started. Phil Spector came in with a guy by the name of Steve Douglas. Steve said, I got a couple more whispers. Do you want to play? <laughs> I said, put me down on there. So we did a, and, and Steve was not a reader. He was a great player. He could read chords. He was a great, you know, we used to call him teenage Steve because he did all those great tenor solos on the Phil Spector records. I got to meet Phil and he hired me to my first record date. That was the first time I met Al Blaine and Tommy Tedesco and Barney Kessel, Howard Roberts, they all were on those dates. And, and to play with these guys, Leon, Leon wasn't there yet at that point. It was uh, uh, Mike Rubini, Gene Garth is the name most people forget about. Mike Spencer. Mike Spencer was a classical pianist who grew up at Fairfax High School with Phil. And sometimes and Al Delore was there. So these were the, the nucleus of those early records. And then little by little, Mike Lang came in later on. Mike Melbourne came in later on. Leon Russell came in later on. Larry Nettler was there pretty much right from the very beginning. 
And all these guys were playing with bands, so they would leave town, and that would leave a hole for new piano players to get a chance. And uh, I stayed with it, and I stayed in town, and, but I always worked a nightclub gig. I always had to be playing live, because that was where my true blood was, playing live music. And the first major record that I got to play on was these boots are made for walking. And you won't even hear my piano player because it's hard to have just in the background. And I got hired by Lee Hazelwood in Billy Strange. And I've been with Nancy for 50 years from that start. And in between, I got the, the most interesting life experience of all time. When I thought, it's, when you think it's all over, I came. The 60s were hot, the 70s were hot, the 80s, you know, I started to peter out. The 90s, nothing, you know. <laughs> and then they start calling you again in the 20s and the 2000s. To the point being, Don was talking about earlier. Last year, I got to play on the number one Grammy Award winning record. And Hal Blaine, Joe Osborne, and myself. It was a joy to do. It was a call that I'm not going to forget you. I'm not going to miss you, is what the song is. And it was working with Glenn Campbell once again. And it was the happiest and the saddest day at the same time because Glenn didn't know who I was. We did the song, the song was incredible, and Glenn sang and played it absolutely incredible. And I didn't I knew they were filming us, but I didn't know how much part of that end of, of Glenn's life story was going to be dealing with Alzheimer's. And that whole transformation of me just sitting here right now talking to you people about it and thinking about that whole thing. Had I never got a chance to do that, I wouldn't be here, first of all. I never met some of these people. If I never met all these wonderful arrangers over that period of time that were hiring me as a pianist. And then it ends up, all these years later, I'm 78 years old now, and to sit with Glenn and Hal and Joe and make another hit record. It's incredible, absolutely incredible. And so I always had Tommy there, who 
was the best reader, the best reader in Los Angeles, as we used to say, he could read fly shit. You know, and he was, and so he would occasionally I'd have to write something for for was to play. And uh, Tommy would would blink and would kind of look up and Tommy would play it for him. Yeah. And then and then Glenn and then Glenn got it down. Right. right. And vice versa, Tommy picked up all these rhythms and things that he was, yeah, was not part of the session. Right. So they were a great duo to have on almost any kind of session we could do. Incidentally, some of the greatest hit songs that you've ever heard, the demos were better because Glenn sang them. We would do all the demos for composers and for, for different singers and songwriters. Glenn would sing the songs and they were incredible. And then, you know, of course, somebody else would get a hit on it, but the best versions are still in the can someplace. <laughs> you know, another question is, the technology changed for the recording industry, obviously, for musicians and engineers. Did that change arranging, you know, technology? Or did it, obviously, some made it easier? Did it make it more difficult or anything different? The, the main difference, I, I don't know if I'm speaking for everybody, we had more fun when we were all together in one room. When Perry would write for an orchestra, the orchestra was there. The excitement was incredible. Now you walk in and maybe the producer, the engineer, and Pro Tools, and that's where you live now. You know, you go, you do your part, you get paid and see them. There was no, I would love to have a nickel for how many times an arranger has heard something by a mistake that somebody made in the guitar or the piano. He said, wait a second, let's go that way. But you could do that because it was live. You could say, no, I'm gonna do what Mike just played. Let's 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 follow how that's going. That doesn't happen anymore because nobody's here unless you're doing a big film score or something like that. And a lot of times it doesn't happen there either because they're doing it differently. If I could just amplify that, just another you know just another way of saying it. You're in a room of people, and you're all reacting to each other in real time. That's an experience you only get to a that way. You know, and uh, it's like you know, any of us could be playing, and somebody over there does something that changes everything in the room at that moment. And if you do three recordings of a song, they could all be similar, or they might be incredibly different. And so the whole magic of the creative possibility it happens. I, I, I remember once I was doing a record uh, for Barbara Streisand, Greg Philippines, who was the other keyboard player. And we were lamenting that we never get to see each other and work with each other. And, it, you know, it, it, all of us were, we're, we're bonded, all of us in the room that are musicians, Tommy Morgan, Fred Selden, all that. There's a love and there's a society there. And it's like there's nothing more important about the music than the fact that it's social. You know, it's not only social verbally with all the fun and all the stories. You know, Don and I talked for 20 minutes earlier today. We're catching up over a 55-year relationship or something like that. I mean, that's what's magical, and that's what feeds into the music, and that's what made it so magical for us when we were all working together and making the music. Danny said something in, in the film, in, in his dialogue. He said, you know, I looked at my father's appointment book and I realized I didn't see him as much as I thought I did. 
And the truth was, we saw your dad more than you saw your dad. And, and we love each other. And we are we are brothers, just like, just as if we went on the battlefield together. Because when that red light comes on, it's business. And I just want to mention that one thing about technology that changed so dramatically was all of a sudden there were multi-track recordings. Now, when we did Phil Spector, it was one track, then two, then three. But all of a sudden now, you had 24 tracks. And certain musicians now have their own track. And after they went home, the engineers would be sitting there in the period and say, hey, let's just hear what the guitar's doing. So you push the solo button, and now you're hearing me for three minutes. And if I was not doing it right, they didn't call me anymore. So certain guys disappeared. There were certain guys that we, we all liked them, but suddenly by exposure. <laughs> yes, yes. So, so I believe that that part of technology did change. Ray Pizzi tells a wonderful story about being alone in a room, like as Don was describing, where he's just there and the producer's in the booth and he plays a sax solo and the producer came out and he said, Ray, man, he said, that was ignorant. And Ray said, thank you, man. <laughs> Connie Condoli, uh, doing a date, I finished doing a date and we were together afterwards. I now realize that I am a, a synthesizer enhancement unit. <laughs> he was playing to a synthesizer orchestra, but they wanted a lead trumpet on it. So, you know, for all of us, and, and, and I, I, working with all these Jimmy Haskell, working with H.P. Barnum, working for Don Pete, working for Perry, all these guys, for me, Every time I, I went in, it was an education. I, I stole from everyone. <laughs> because you could do that. And they gave you a chance. Um, when we did the Stone Ponies, for instance, had I not had my education, when Linda Ronstadt, uh, on the sound of a different drum, my part, all set, was chords. And I'm playing this on a wonderful harpsichord. And on the top of my chord chart, Baroque style. Oh. That's all it said. Had I not known what Baroque style meant, I'd probably never know what to play. But because I, I made believe I was Bach playing uh, Bach, uh, yeah. that, that's what became so noticeable on the record. But the, they left us that opportunity to create and give back to the producers, to the arrangers. And if an arranger was smart, he left that rhythm section pretty loose so that we could develop it. And, and, and a lot of times it made the arrangement a lot better. Sometimes it didn't work. It, it wasn't that it was 100% clear, but 95% of the time that rhythm section help, would help more than anything else on the especially the rock and roll records. Yeah, so yeah, when you guys were recording in those days, you know, arranging things, were you keeping up with what was going on? Like, also Motown's doing the horn section and also Ng was bringing out the guitars. Do you consciously keep uh, knowing what's going on at that point, or is it just a subconscious? Well, I think for us, well, first of all, for me, and I can speak for myself, I loved what we were doing very much. I didn't mind if somebody said, can you play like Floyd Kramer? Sure, you got it. Can you make it a little more darker, more like Ray Charles? You got it. And that's what we were. We were the professional clones of all time. Because we could give them what they wanted. We, we knew how, if somebody said something, they didn't know how to write that part. But verbalizing, they could, you know, say to us, 
this is the, this is the sound I'm looking for. This is the direction I want to go. And that worked very well. And, and it gave us a chance, because most of us were jazz players. I would say 90% of us were. Uh, Glenn Campbell wasn't. Uh, uh, Jerry Cole wasn't. Billy Strange was, so he could play. He could write also. But most of the guys were capable of doing that because we had that experience. Had we not had any experience whatsoever, it would have been a tougher way to go. But they left it open for us. And on those records, you know, not so much with Phil Spector, with Phil, everybody was playing those same 16th or 8th notes, but you were bleeding, you know, it was that wall of sound, which is what we were called in the beginning. But we joked around a lot and made a lot of trouble for a lot of people from us just messing around on the session. And that's when the word came out, these guys are going to wreck the business. And that's how we became wrecking. <laughs> I want to just say something because it's related to Don and I both sharing a lot of dates with Phil Spector. I was on my like fourth day with Phil Spector, so I was sort of in somehow. And um, and I was now starting to really listen at, at, you know, at a more pronounced level to what was going on and trying to figure out what the possibilities were. So we're all playing like basically we're playing a triad with the two, four, five year old lead, and left hand. Larry, I'm sorry to pound the table. Okay, so I got that. I'm in, I'm accepted, I gotta get it. Okay. So then I think, what else can I do? So when we get to the fade, the fades were very long on these full spectrum records, and it would be like a four-bar fade. So the first two bars would be a horn section. They'd be playing a lick. And then the second two bars would be open. And I just thought, what would happen if I break that? Because two other guys are playing it. And I play just a little lick in octaves, like a hook, you know? Dang. And the horns are going. So I see it in the first two bars. And then I go. And then it's Right in octaves, and I'm like risking my career. So, at the end of that take, Phil Spector, who could be very theatrical with his voice, he said, Which keyboard player played that high shit on the piano? And I'm like, You know, I'm 25 years old or whatever, and I know I can't lie. I just said, I said, Well, Phil, I did it. He said, That was beautiful. And that was like, you know, it's like I went, you know, I went from 37th call to 36th call or something like that. It was, it was one of those moments in my life. Uh, what was it for you? Was it, who got in trouble with Phil? Was it you or my company? Both of us. Okay. <laughs> I was guilty by association. You want that story? Yeah. Okay. Phil, you know, Phil had a, a very interesting life in that um, he was busy and he was recording mostly artists that were up and coming. He wasn't recording like well well known artists. He, he controlled publishing the whole artistic lives. And he had, re had reached a point where he did this record that was his most important record. It's called River Deep Mountain High, and I continue to turn to do it. And it was the number one record in England. And for whatever reason, it didn't have a life in Los Angeles at all, I mean in the United States. He was very depressed. And I remember that I was working for Perry Bodkin at United Studio A, and we were doing the Checkmates, which was a black uh, R&B kind of group. May have been there. I don't, I, I don't know. And it was an orchestra. And Phil abruptly left in the middle of the session, and that was his exit from the music business for many, many years. 
And then he started producing all these different these, these different people. And then and I got to work with the Ramones and Leonard Cohen. I mean, he started working with well-known artists, and it was a very different experience. And then he got this John Lennon project. And um, uh, the way it worked was he wanted to keep the whole thing chaotic to keep John happy. And so we never had music. We just had chord charts. And we, I mean, we had lyrics. We had to write the chords down and all this stuff. So he would book us for three hours. But the truth was, because of the process, it would take us at least three hours to get to the point where we had chords written down and everything could start to get rehearsed and get recorded. So there was one night where Mike Melvin and I were on the session together, and we had gone four and a half hours. And Nino Temple was the contractor slash sergeant at arms. And because Phil had evidently really, even though it was John Lennon and the budget was probably very luxurious, Phil had been excessive and he was under the gun and he was, you know, trying to protect himself. So Nino comes out and goes through the band and he comes to Mike Melvin and I and says, so um, I know it was a three hour call, but we've gone four and a half hours and we want to call it a double session and we'd like to start a third session. Is that okay with you guys? Now this was the very first time that Mike Melvin had ever worked with Phil Spector and I was pissed off because when Phil started out, I was just new and I was a scale player and then I had advanced charging two doubles and then I didn't work for them for years and I'd become a double scale player, which was pretty much common practice for people who were established. Um, and when Phil put out the call for the John Lennon thing, I said, by the way, I'm double scale now. And he said, well, I can only pay you two doubles. And out of a feeling of nostalgia, I said yes. In the meantime, he hired Mike Melvin at double scale, so I wasn't happy about that. <laughs> and he's there for the first time. So, um, anyway, so Mike was very pro-union and very active, and he looked at me and says, I don't know about you, he says, but for me, we have gone, we've done a three-hour day, and we've done two and a half hours of overtime, and once we're agreeable to that, we can talk about starting a third session or not. He said, will you support me? And I said, well, I guess so, you know. So Nino and I were close, and I said, well, Mike feels this way, and I, I think that's the right thing to do. So Nino goes back in the booth and tells Phil Spector, and, and there was a whole scene that went down, and Plaz Johnson, the tenor player who had been working for Phil for years, he disagreed to it, he walked off the date. Conti Condoli felt it was okay, no problem, anything you want, man, you got it. And in the meantime, the piano section had made its statement. And Nino comes back and said, Phil Spector said he will never hire a piano player named Mike again. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I didn't know, that was my last date on the John Lennon project. I did associate with him one more time, which was a, a long, long story. Don knows that it was the Celine Dion project. But, uh, but, but, but that, that was a, a, a very sad rejection. <laughs> do we have any questions? I have a conversation actually. You know, I just have to tell these guys, we were so lucky to be there at that time. Especially for me, I was there a little bit before Mike, but it lasted. It lasted for such a great long time. Um, I remember having a big fight with my wife over my children. And we were going back and forth, and I said, well, what, what, what's going on? She says, where were you? 
And I, I got it, and I, I just looked at her. I, there was a period of time where, for, I'd say, for almost nine years, from 1962 to maybe 71 or 72 for me, and then onward me, but uh, um, we were never home. Uh, our family lives suffered because of that. And thank God, the, you know, as much money as you make, it's, it's never enough if you can't spend the time with your family. And I have since then made it up, thank God. It cost me a lot, but I made it up. <laughs> And it, it, it was a, it's a great life, and, and uh, these guys were such a pleasure to be with, you know, and, and to work with, and the camaraderie was just, just amazing. I'll give you one quick story before I, I must go. We all were on a date with Mike Nesmith called Wichita Train, Train Whistle, and Shorty Rogers was the arranger, and Mike decided that he wanted to give back to the musicians. Paid us everybody double scale on Saturday and Sunday went to golden time. So we were making a fortune for four days. And this one, it was catered by Musso Franks and by Patsy DeMores. And it, it was an amazing day. And on, on one of the tunes, Mike Nesbitt walked over to Tommy Tedesco and says, Tommy, when you get to bar 57, someplace around here, do something outrageous. I mean, just let it go. Go crazy. And he was playing a Stratocaster guitar. And Tommy says, well, what do you mean? You know, he said, well, just do something outrageous. I think Larry Nepto was also there with me. And we're behind the guitar players. And now, let's see, what does he want to do? And just before we start, Shorty Rogers comes over. Hey, man, you know, he really means it. Like, uh, when you get to that part, can you dig it, man? And that was Shorty Rogers. Mr. Cool, Mr. Hill. And, okay, now, we started doing this. We're waiting. Because we know he's going to take it out and play something new. What he did is he gets to that bar and you hear him. He stood up, hit a power cord, a ring, and he took his shadow caster and threw it straight up into the air on a long cord. This is our RCA Victor. It had a real high ceiling. It goes up, listen here. Everybody's in shock. Like, what the hell just happened? And then the guitar goes out. Bang! Crash! Whoa! And, and, and we're all looking around, and we keep going. <laughs> they recorded it, and if you listen closely, on, on, a, you'll hear, on, the, on the envelope, this guitar coming down and crashing. But that was all of us. That was Tommy Tedesco, that was the wrecking crew. We all were capable of doing outrageous things like that, and we did. Mike Nesmith says the biggest, the biggest mistake he made on that on that date was having an open bar for these guys. <laughs> <laughs> I just I want to say one thing real fast before Don goes. I want to give I want to salute Danny for what he's done. This is most unbelievable. He's changed our my life. He's changed our lives. I was at a restaurant, I heard somebody talk about the wrecking crew. Wherever you go, people are talking. Don has supported Danny in this and this has been like a journey. How many year journey is this? Nineteen. It's unbelievable. This is giving birth to something, but it's made, it's certainly helped me. It made me feel good. And I just want to thank Danny. And well, thank you. Thank you. It's because this period of time will never happen again. Not because there's not great musicians. It's not that because there's not great, you know, arrangers and composers. It's just because what you guys were in, you, that's what you had to work with. And that's how it came about. You gotta do it, yeah.
Thank you very much.
Okay, you had a question about John Gardner. Gail's coming out. Come here, Gail. Gail Levent, ladies and gentlemen. I can't hear you, Gail. Other. 
Got it. I mean, I had so much fun with all these guys and hearing some of the names today that I haven't thought about for a while. Debbie, I cannot thank you for doing what you've done. How would, because it's amazing, because these, these are musicians, they're not Boy Scouts. What was it like to be that way? Oh, well, I was a baby. So, um, I was very naive. But, I guess I handled myself okay because I got accepted as one of the guys, which was really cool. Yeah. Um, but during the 60s and the 70s, when there was a lot of, uh, obviously a lot of pot smoking, a lot of coke, and a lot of stuff that was going on, and I mean, I didn't know from any of this. I was just, you know, I'd get high on my dog, or I'd get high on a tree or whatever, you know, and I was just me. I knew I didn't care for the smell of pot, so sometimes I'd be in the ISO booth so I wouldn't have to smell it because the room stunk. <laughs> but we'd have five minute breaks. And I remember thinking when the guys would go out, whether it was, well, just any of the guys that were, you know, part of the band, um, they'd come back in and they'd all be sniffling and sneezing and sniffling. And I, and I think to myself, why are these guys taking these sessions? They've all got colds and they're going to ruin the tape. <laughs> But uh, no, they were terrific. They really, Carol was the only other female there, Carol Kay, and she was amazing. She was just, and we got along so well. So it was just so much fun to be with all of these people. And they made me feel like I was part of the family. And we were a family, but we'd do at least three dates a day and run and do jingles. And, you know, I mean, it was just, it's great. It's amazing that, they, because they're going back to arranging, because you were, their art was so much involved in so many of these impressions. I mean, can you mention a few of them that you remember that were? Oh, I, I don't remember which ones, but I mean, I just, you know, because it becomes a blur after right. one session to the next session to the next session, and then, you know, a lot of times I'd go in at midnight and I'd have my great dame with me because I'd go into a session and do some harp overdubs, and they'd say, oh, this is what we've got. We don't have any music, and so I would just listen and do what I was going to do, but it was basically just, for the most part I had, unless Perry was arranging, or Ian did a word. Did you? Ian, sir. Yeah. Ian would write. I mean, um, the arrangers, like what Marty Page was mentioned earlier, and I loved Marty Page. Um, most of the guys just, you know, that you guys had rhythm charts, and I was one of the guys with the rhythm chart. Any other questions for these folks? And I love those kind of sessions. I want to tell you Artie Bumper's story. Yes, please. Okay, we're at the same data session. Artie is at the, at the door of the studio having a heated discussion with some musician. We're all filing in to go inside. And Tibor Zalek, the violinist, is from Budapest. And Tibor is walking by, and Artie says, Hey, Tibor, come here. And Tibor walks over and says, What? And, and uh, Artie says, We're having a discussion. We need your help. Is it pronounced forest or forest? <laughs> Tibor says, it's woods. <laughs> yeah, you couldn't see the forest for the woods. I mean, when I first met Artie, you know, and not to be taken away from our wrecking crew, but he, he's from New York, he was a Brooklyn boy, and he, you know, he was from New York. And he talks like that. We, we talk like that, right? So, but I'm trying to get him to a bunch of that way, but he's like, anyway. So, um, the first time he heard me say Fiddler on the Roof, 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 it started barking because in New York it's Fiddler on the Roof, Roof, Roof. Daddy, 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 Daddy,
the genesis of that song come about? Nadia, uh, what became uh, Nadia's theme, well, it's gone through several titles. I, I call it my M33 story, which was in a, in a film that Barry DeVorzheim and I had, had done a score for called Bless the Beast and Children. And there was a cue, uh, that's why I call it the M33 story, because you always gave an M number to what that meant. That M33 would have meant real three, Q3. And anyway, one of the, so, so the, the music, the, the Q, and, and the, uh, sort of the piece of the, the action that was going on. And, and uh, so I, uh, I wrote this Q for this Q. And, uh, and it worked, and it worked nicely in the movie. And it, it, effective with the, with the uh, scene that was going on. And I got a call after the score was over from the, from the uh, from Lester Sill, who was running the publishing company for Columbia at the time. And he said, there's a, uh, there's a piece of music in the soundtrack album uh, that, uh, that he said, CBS is starting a new uh, starting a new soap opera, and he said, there's a, there's a piece of music in there called Cotton's Dream. And he said, hey, would it be okay if I submitted it to, to CBS and give us a possible thing for your TV show? And uh, I said, sure. I mean, what am I I said, no, no, I don't like CBS. <laughs> so, so, um, so he said, okay, and he did, he submitted it, they liked it, they put it up, and it turned out that the soap was, was uh, 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 The Young and the Restless, and I think it's in its 47th year now. And, and, then, and, then, and then, when, when uh, uh, Nadia Komanich got her perfect 10 in, the Olympic, in her Olympic, here, uh, they, they, whoever did the background uh, took, took that off of our soundtrack uh, that thing and used it for her. And A and M Records uh, released it and called it Nadia's theme, and up the charts that went. And and the last gasp of this thing, somebody called me and said, oh. You're, you're number three on MTV. Or something. <laughs> and, and, and I said, they said, and it's a singer named uh, Mary J. Blige. Uh, and I never heard of Mary J. Blige. <laughs> so, and, and it, so I went out, and they were, uh, this is four years ago, probably now, something like that. I went up and bought a copy of Mary J. Blige's CD see what was there. And here was, here was a song called No More Drama. And it had, it had uh, these two producers, two very rather famous uh, R&B producers, as the writers, and Barry uh, Corson and Perry for 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 songwriters. And, uh, and uh, the little that's, that's 
I'm in 33. <laughs> is a big roll of the dice. You know, you just, just like Ben Barrett that we're talking about, he said one word to me. Uh, he said, Perry, I never want to hear you utter the word no. Uh, I want you to write so-and-so on, on the top of the Capitol Tower with 37 strings in it. Yes, yes, I'll do it. Where's the lad? And so uh, that was the last shot. Conductor. 
and I'm reading this part that's like in 18 flats, you know, and a thousand notes, and genius like this yeah. in a mirror. And it was like a Saturday Night Live, you know. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was a memorable thing. Oh, Susan, yeah, I don't understand the mirror. Why? Oh, because the piano was set up where he couldn't be in front of me. And, you know, I was, it was a situation where the way the studio was set up. He was conducting where everybody could see him, but my back was to him. So they gave me a mirror to see him. Does that, I'm trying to, I'm visualizing this. Does it reverse the count? I mean, yeah, it reverses it. Lots to And with Gene, even though he was um, so talented, and as the guys are saying, the parts would be written out and everything, he never wrote anything for me. I can't ever remember a part that I was ever, um, that I had actual music other than the chord sheet and what the rhythm section was doing. And um, in the days when we were doing disco records, um, I mean, he did, we did so many sessions together. And the fades were maybe three times as long as the song. The fade would go on and on and on. <laughs> oh, yeah, two more records out of it. But Jesus, he was great. And it, the smile that didn't stop. Oh, yeah. he, he was, was just so care. full of joy. He'd have a stopwatch. The stopwatch and the, 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 the magic tempo was everything with him. I remember doing, yes. I did a Seals and Cross record with him at, at what was it called? Uh, their own studio, started with a D, Dawnbreaker or something like that. Right. No, it was out, way out in San Fernando somewhere. And Louis Shelton was producing it, and I remember Ed Green was there, and uh, I can't remember, he'll see the house maybe. Anyway, Gene drove all the way out, he was an hour late to the set, and he had forgotten his watch, and he was insisting that he had to drive back to Hollywood and get that watch, and we had to talk about it and say, you know, but the way, he was so funny, he'd have a four-piece band, he'd say, hello, orchestra, how you doing, Mr. Black, what's going on? And one, and two, hey, Doc, what's happening? Yeah, okay, okay, right. And one, and two, and one, too fast, too fast, too fast, okay, okay, hi, orchestra. He was just in that experience. And, and Gene Page had a sidekick named Jack Schulman. Jack Schulman was a violinist and also a copyist. And they would stay up all night. Gene would write and write and write, and Jack would be there. They had a building down on, uh, I guess it was the Pilot or Brea, with a bunch of cottages, and they had people in the cottages copying. And there was one day, yes, and there was one day we were on a session with Gene, and it, we were running late, we were running late. And he said, okay, everybody, take a break. And we went outside. I came back in early to, to get something, and I saw Jack Schulman standing on a chair Turning the clock back. Oh. Yeah, so that he could take have the session go a little bit longer. And one day when we were doing a big session, I think we were at do you remember when we used to be at Columbia? Yeah. Okay. We had Columbia had a big room where we would do uh, the rhythm section, the whole orchestra, the background singers, and the lead singer. Everybody all together. I mean, those are really such special times. And so we're at I think it was Columbia, and. All of a sudden, and Jack played the violin, so he'd be in the string section as well. And all of a sudden, one day, he just keels over. And everybody, they didn't know what to do. He just was on the floor. Violin had fallen, fortunately, it didn't be broken. And everybody's afraid to go near him. So I just said, well, come on, guys, we've got to help him. And I went over to him, put his head in my lap, and I said, call the paramedics, da 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 And he was 
filled with perspiration and everything. And I didn't know if he'd had a heart attack or what had happened. I kept stroking and said, Jack, you're going to be fine. Just relax. Anyway, the paramedics medics came. And what it was ultimately was that he had had too much salt from this chicken soup that his wife had made the night before. Laurie, so. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, I have to do this. Jack, Jack was always, Gene was always wonderful, you know, like as you say, one, two, Del, how are you? You know, three, you know. But besides that, you know, Jack was, was like Mr. Milk Toast. And Laurie was always wonderful, you know, and he'd call up and, oh, Don, how are you? Yes, I'll get Jack for you. And then you'd hear, you little weasel, the phone's for you. Yeah, I think every day we might see two of the same people, or we might not see anybody for three 
runs. But the, the whole idea is you're, you're hearing music and playing music for the first time. And it's almost like an improvisation. And it's like you have a certain amount of time to make it happen. And it's a process, you know. And, and generally, the best instances of this are when it comes together magically. And the very first take you do is the magical take. Yeah. Or the second take. You know, I've been on dates where we've done 30 takes, and all of a sudden they say, let's hear take two. We go yeah. after take two, and, that, and that, that, that's the one. Because it never will be as, as fresh and um, from the heart as opposed. Because when you take 30, yeah, Chuck, we have to go out and wait for the moment. When you're going to take 30 or take 20, whatever it is, now you're thinking with your head as opposed to from your heart. So it's a, a whole. And it's the same way today. I remember on a session we were doing with James Horner. And we were on one queue for five hours for a film. And yeah, a long, long time ago, we had started the day at 10 in the morning. We had a break at 1 for lunch and 2 o'clock. I don't remember what, which film it was. I don't, I don't think it was Casper. Whatever which one it was. And I thought to myself, how can we all still sound fresh five hours later on the same queue? But you know, take one or two, get that tape going right away. And get the, Who's the, uh, the, most, the easiest to deal with with getting the rights to have these clips and these things? The, 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 the reason it took us 19 years, it, people realized when I was trying to shop this thing around, the problem was I had 110 songs in this movie. And no one would ever think sure. you're never going to get this made because if you're going to get an investor, no one's going to invest money in a film that's not going to make money. Because they're assuming a, a music doc is only going to make this much, but it's going to cost us this much, and that was the whole basis of this whole film. You got to shoot. You got to have the music. The labels and the publishers were not the problem. It was the amount of music. It was economics. It just took time and time and time. We did through donations. We had a couple Kickstarter folks here who donated, and it just took us a long time before we could do it. But you know. In terms of, I didn't really have any problems. I mean, it sounds crazy, 19 years, but the hardest problem was not being able to put everybody in the film or doing more interviews. I still got to kicking myself. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. You had the last story. Oh, okay. All right. So we were working with Vic Benet, who's an amazing producer. Perry worked with him a whole lot. I'm sure Don crossed paths. I'm guessing Yale did too. And uh, I worked with Perry with him, but more, more often I worked with him with Jim Spahn, who did a lot of work with Nick. And we did this one particular record with Dory Previtt. And every lyric was about her breakup with Andre Previtt, who were married. And it was a, like a very painful breakup, as these lyrics would attest to. And I never listened to lyrics at all, especially then. And Tommy Tedesco was a guitar player. Tommy Tedesco never blew a take as long as, long as I've known him. He was like the most unbelievably hyper-reliable musician I've ever met. I mean, just always playing something that was usable, extraordinary mostly. So we're playing this song, and the rhythm section completely breaks down. And it's Tommy. He just like completely dropped the ball. And Nick Vinay said, what happened? And Tommy said, you know, he says, I gotta tell you, Dory, I never listened to lyrics ever. He said, but I started listening to what you were singing, and the lyrics touched me so much. I just lost it. I, I, I'm really sorry. 
we got to take a break. I'm upset. You know, I need a minute to, to get this together. He made a real point out of this whole thing. And so we take a break. And when Dory's out of the room and he's talking to us, he said, could you believe that BS she wrote? I couldn't even fucking deal with it. Thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. We welcome your feedback at www.asmac.org. This is Kim Richmond, president of ASMAC, and on behalf of the board, I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, First Wednesdays workshops, and our annual Golden Score Awards banquet. For a complete list of our podcasts and DVDs, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Larry Goldman of Balboa Studios for recording this talk. Editing was done by Cooper Appelt to prepare for broadcast. Thank you.